a warning for you. Don't stake your retirement on outdated advice. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. You know, there are general rules of thumb that come in handy in life, right? Don't talk to strangers. Don't run with scissors. Don't spit into the wind. Sometimes, though, rules of thumb, we turn around and say they end up being rules of dumb. Dumb rules, right, that we try (laughs) to stick to, Steve. One of those that pops up all the time is the 4% rule when it comes to retirement. Yeah, and you know I've got mixed uh, mixed opinions on this, Amy. I, I think let's start with what it is. Let, right? Let's talk what about it first. Rule. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's a rule, and it was developed in in uh, well, technically it was 1994. There was a pretty interesting study done um, that if you had half your money in stocks, half your money in bonds, what's the withdrawal rate that would pretty much assure you would not run out of money? And there's yeah. a lot of science that, that this was based on. And, and in, 19, in 1994, that answer was roughly 4%. In other words, if you've got $100,000 in a 401k and you take out 4% or $4,000 a year, you should not have to worry about running out of money. Well, let, let's let's revisit history a little bit because in 1994, stocks were roaring. I, I mean, in 93, 13% return on the Dow. 94, yeah, it was only 2%. But in 95, stocks did 33%. I, I mean, wow. stocks were just on a run. How Okay, well, how about the other half? That's in CDs. Well, six-month CDs at the low point in the early 90s were about 3.5%. The whole second half of the 90s, they were above 5 can you so imagine say, interest yeah. rates like that now? So, so, you know, to say, okay, take 4% or less out, that was pretty darn conservative. That's not where we're at now, is it? Well, the, yeah, the entire environment is different, right? I mean, you sure. cannot count on 33% returns on your stocks, and you certainly can't, you know, you can't find anywhere other than an I-bond where you can shove $10,000 in, where you can get a guaranteed return anywhere above 1% at this point, right? Yeah. So 5%, how about 0.5%, even that's stretching yeah, it right now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So the situation that was existing, right, when the 4% rule came around, it doesn't exist, right? Those factors right. that were factored into that, they just don't exist anymore. Yet, Steve, there's so many, I think, people who want to retire who want some kind of formula that we can just stick to, right? Yeah, yeah. I just do this, then I'm going to be okay. Uh, so what are your thoughts? Because because there's new research out, uh, just out, saying that the number, there is a number, and that it should be 3.3%. Yeah. Hey, and, and this is a study done by Morningstar. I, I'm well-respected, right. to say the least. I mean, I, yeah. I've used Morningstar my entire career, mostly for research on, on mutual funds and, and things like that. So so they did a study and based on current interest rates and current stock market returns. They think that number should be closer to 3.3%. Here's the problem I've got with it, Amy, and I, I think it's it's a good place to start the discussion, but to just blanket say, hey, don't take more than 3.3% out of your IRA or your 401k or your investment portfolio each year, I, I think that is such oversimplification. Okay, if are you telling me if you're 70 years old, how about 80 years old, 3.3%? We don't live forever. I I think you can raise that as your age increases, yet I don't see any mention of that in the article. I also don't see anything. They call it a balanced portfolio. Is that 50-50? Is that 60-40? What if you want to be 70-30? Can you increase that percentage that you take out? You know, so I, I would like to see some more studies on this that are more age related and and asset allocation related. 
but it's a starting point because there are a lot of people that, that are out there that, that are saying, I don't know if I'm taking out too much, if I'm going to run out of money. How much can I start taking out? Okay, let's talk about 3 to 4% as a beginning, and then let's start talking about financial planning and start nailing down what are your specific needs. I think that's really what it boils down to, not a blanket statement. I think you make an excellent point in the fact that, okay, if you want a number that you can draw down off of your investments, we'll give you a number as a starting point. The problem is the 4% rule was the rule of thumb, right, for so many years, for so many people. Um, And it probably should have never been a rule of thumb, you know, for as long as it was, because, you know, so much of, you know, when you had those low, you know, low interest rates and uh, low inflation and low bond yields and strong stock returns, like those sorts of things didn't exist, you know, going into yeah. early 2000 and things like that. So this rule of thumb that, that so many people want to stick to um, should have never been a rule of thumb in the first place. No, but you, again, you have to start somewhere. Yeah, you, you know, I, I mean, if you're retired and you don't, you're, you're not affiliated with an, an investment advisor and you're talking to coworkers as you approach retirement or, or you've recently retired and you're talking to other retirees, it, it's it's amazing how many how many thoughts and opinions are out there. I mean, it is it is absolutely amazing, and and some of them have some validity. I I've heard things like, okay, your asset allocation should be the inverse of your your age. Okay, so in other words, if I'm sixty, I should be forty percent stock, sixty percent bonds. If I'm seventy. I, I should be 70% bonds, 30% stocks. I don't buy that, you know, but at, at least it, it gets you talking about moving in the right direction of reducing risk as you age, if that's your inclination. So, you know, running out of money is the biggest fear of yeah. anybody that retires. So what's the magic number? Nobody has a real good answer. And we're looking at a study from 1994. I, I mean, since when yeah. do we depend on data from 1994 to to influence anything we're doing today? Yet that's to what point, advisors have been up- using. Well, when you look up something online right now and it's from 2019, we're like, ah, nah, that's Old outdated. News. It's from yeah. 10 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we break down the 4% rule. New research out showing it should be the 3.3% rule, and we disagree with that because, Steve, I think it's so easy to want to cling to some sort of formula, some sort of hard sure. number that works for everyone. Let me just plug in my numbers, and I'll just it'll compute something, and that's my answer. Retirement is not a one-size-fits-all equation it's for not. any of us. It's not, but if you're 64, 65, 66, and you just retired or you're close to retirement, and you want to know, okay, I know what I'm getting from Social Security, maybe don't have a pension coming in, how much can I draw out of my investments? I think a good starting point is 4%, 3.5%, somewhere in that range, and that's a starting point which means let's revisit it a year from now and a year after that and a year after that. And are you seeing your investment accounts start to dwindle? Are you finding that, okay, I'm steadily taking out 4% or 3.5%, but, oh, yeah, I needed a new roof that year, so I had to take out an, another 12, 13 grand. Well, that's not 35 or 4% anymore. Yeah. And that's why it becomes extremely important to revisit your cash flow, revisit your financial plan, because if, if you're running running out of money when you didn't think you were going to run out of money, let's get to that conclusion 10 years, 15 years before it happens, not the year that you're due to run out. You don't want to be 
welcome to Walmart when you're 80 years old. Yes, certainly no one wants to get to that point. And you're right. I think everyone's number one fear is running out of money while you still have time left. Uh, And Steve, what are the conversations yet, though, that you're having with investors around the 4% rule? I mean, do people come to you aware of this? Are they attached to it? Uh, Does it take a while for you to talk through this? Or how how does this go? I'll tell you where it usually comes up is when somebody loves to spend money. I I mean, I, I, I love the people, usually West Side Cincinnatians, that always, always have lived below their below yes. their means. You, they you know, are they, savers, good not savers. Okay, not everybody is like that, and I have had some significantly important conversations with people that are, you know, when all said and done, oh yeah, but I had to do this, and and you know, I I had to buy that. Um, okay, you took out nine percent last year. That's not sustainable. Whether you mm-hmm. agree or disagree with three and a half, four percent, nine percent per year each and every year is bad. So if I can get that kind of person into thinking about, okay, what is sustainable? That I I, I remember one conversation in particular. Um, really sweet woman, good person. Um, and Steve, how much can I take out this year? That's a different mindset from, uh, hey, I bought this, I bought that, and yeah, here's what you need to know for your plan, and you know, I, I don't need somebody to tell me um, how much I'm allowed to spend or what I'm going to do in, in life and retirement. So you know, what what I would do with that specific case is say, all right, don't spend more than X, and it was usually around four, four and a quarter percent. She was at mm-hmm. this point in her seventies. So, you know, there again, as you age, maybe you can take out a little bit more each year because you don't live forever. And in her case, she was able to deal with, okay, I know I can't spend more than 15 grand or 16 grand or 17, whatever that number happens to be. And she stuck with that. And she made a huge change in her, in her, her mindset where she stopped stressing about money and buying stuff and found that, okay, I can still enjoy my retirement. I can still buy and do what I need to do and, and not exceed that dollar amount because exceeding that will get me in trouble. I think it's really that so many people approach retirement with the wrong way of thinking, right? It's how much do I need when the question you should be asking is how much do I spend? And I will never forget several years ago, in the same week, we had two different uh, women come into come into Allworth, and one of them, you're right, she was a West Sider, uh, and she had minimal income coming in, right? She was living off of Social Security, mm-hmm. a small pension that was her husband's. She was a widow. Yet she had money left over every month mm-hmm. because she was living well within her means. She was a saver. She was not a spender. She was perfectly happy that way. Yeah. Then there was a woman who came in who was a doctor, huge salary, huge salary, and then started talking about retirement and how much she needed and how much she needed, how much she had saved so far. Very little in savings mm-hmm. and also spent many times what that woman from the West Side uh, spends. And so it, it was like, you can't possibly save enough money at this point in your life to yeah. keep up with the way that you spend. So, you know, it's a way of kind of backing into this conversation saying 4%, 3.3%. It just doesn't work for everyone because we all have different spending habits. And you have to be very, very aware of what yours are as you go into retirement. Because I don't think anyone wants to change significantly how you've been living your life up to retirement when you get to retirement. No, the whole point of retirement is to enjoy life. I I mean, you can't take life for granted at retirement age. You never know what tomorrow's going to bring, but you sure don't want to run out of money either. You know, so I I think that you're right on the money, Amy. Um, The mindset of 
what's important to me at this stage of my life, and do I have the money to support it? Your whole point of working, in my opinion, is to to accumulate the money to allow you to enjoy life the way you want to enjoy it. And buying stuff, okay, sometimes you need to, but is that really fulfilling your life, or can you live at a lower spending level in retirement comfortably. And maybe you don't need to. Maybe you've got enough where you don't have to worry about uh, about that. But I, I think it's a real good idea before you retire to, to just have a good discussion with your spouse or a good you know self-reflective moment of what do I want in life, how much does it cost me, and what's realistically what I can start seeing as a distribution rate for my investments without worrying about running out of money. Here's a simply money point. The 4% rule, it is outdated. Your withdrawal rate needs to be customized to your own needs and your own goals. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to our weekly podcast, The Best of Simply Money. It's on the iHeart app or wherever you find your podcasts. Coming up, life imitating art in a very strange way. Here's the bizarre story behind how U.S. Marshals recently solved one of the biggest robberies in Cleveland's history from 1969. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC. The Talk Station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Strovak. Do you have an adult child who's kind of boomeranged back home? You're not alone. Ahead at 643, steps to relaunch them back out into the world, out of your home. See, this is such an interesting story. A 52-year-old bank robbery in Cleveland has been solved, and yeah. it has some ties to a, a big movie. It, it, isn't this crazy? This 20-year-old kid up in Cleveland yeah. figures out a way that he thinks he can rob the bank that he works with. He was a teller, 20 years old, uh, on a Friday. They won't notice it till Monday, and he got away with it. He yeah. he stole, this is 1969, $215,000, which today would be about $1.7 million. I, I mean, yes. this is this is big buddy. And, and it was primarily because he saw the Thomas Crown Affair. And that's yes. one of my favorite movies. It's been made twice. He would have seen the Steve McQueen version, which was awesome, by the mm-hmm. way. Uh, and, and they never caught him. He died last year, and they figured out who it was after he passed. It, it's yeah. incredible. So, so there were some U.S. Marshals, and actually, I think it's a, the son of one of them who was on that original case, who said, like, my dad was obsessed with this, right, for figuring this out. And th- this guy um, had actually kind of bragged to his friends, um, like, I've watched this movie. I'm a bank teller now. I know how to rob a bank. I've totally got this. And then he later, right, not two months later, ended up doing it. And the case was cold for years and years yeah. and years. Um, and, and the reason, the way that they figured it out was he had filled out some documents in the 60s and then actually he had to file some bankruptcy documents he went bankrupt in 2014 (laughs) i guess guess he didn't steal enough (laughs) better at stealing money than he is at uh, keeping it around he needed a good financial advisor that's what he needed (laughs) he did he did not invest well um but yeah stayed under the radar for all of those years so when they finally figured out hey these documents look a lot like the handwriting and the way that these other ones are filled out from the 60s must be the same guy well yeah he had passed earlier this year from cancer but at least there's some closure for those people who've been working these cases all these years they they knew who it was and he had been inspired by a movie of all things yeah yeah and the investigator that that wound up solving the case, interesting, he was a kid whose father was the initial investigator yeah. on the case. And after dad passes away, the kid says, my dad never solved this. I'm going to pick up where he left off and he solved it. Kind of, kind of cool story.
Very cool. For anyone approaching retirement, you know, your Social Security benefit is usually a big part of your plan. So how do you plan when the Social Security Trust Fund is expected to run out by 2035? That's a tough one, Steve. And, and, yeah. and there's lots of different options. And we're going we're gonna to talk through those tonight about what Congress can do, right? What can be done to save this program? And each of those things will impact all of us in different ways. Yeah, and and I'm I'm starting to pay more attention to these things. I, I mean, yeah. I'm a little older than you, and and well, so, we're getting closer, right? Twenty thirty five used to sound like that it far. was. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It yeah. Used to, yeah, I used to think of science fiction of wow, there's going to be rocket ships picking us up to take us to work in twenty thirty five. No, we're going to be running out of social security. Here, yeah. Here's the first thing I want to say though, Amy, it's not going to be the end of your social security benefits. The trust fund is kind of the 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 bank account with the excess money. People are paying into Social Security every day, and they're going to continue to pay. So if Congress As long does, as people are working, exactly. there's going to be money in Social Security. Yeah, got no yeah. choice but to pay into the system. Yeah. So, I, I mean, worst case scenario, Congress can't get their act together. They don't fix anything. There's still enough people paying into the system to, to pay for roughly three-quarters of your benefit. So worst case scenario, you get three-quarters of what you're getting now. So when people come in to me and say, don't, don't include Social Security, it's going to be gone by the time I'm that age. Uh, I'm not going to depend on a dime coming from it. That's really not the smartest. Uh, it's not, not the, the best approach to take uh, to, to the issue. Yeah, you're going to get three quarters at worst. But there, when, when all good options have failed, Congress will do the right thing. And, and they, need, so. they, they need to fix it. And they'll probably fix it right before it's out of money. That's my guess. Well, and Steve, you mentioned that there are some, some investors that come in and talk to you and say, I'm not going to count on a penny from Social Security. Yeah. On the flip side, though, um, at least half of the income for 50% of elderly yeah. married couples, right, is coming from Social Security. So on the flip side, there are so many people that rely on this for half, if not all, oh. of their income in retirement who are, you know hanging on to every word that's being said about Social Security right now because there's huge concerns yeah. about what that would mean for them. So, so let's talk through some of the options that Congress has here. The first one is raising the payroll tax, right? So how much we're all paying yeah. every time the check comes in or every time we get our paycheck, how much, what percentage of that um, we're paying and how much that would need to be increased yeah. in order to kind of stretch this gap. If they raised taxes today, it would only take about 3% and it's fixed. Okay, a three yeah. percent increase in tax. If they wait till twenty thirty five, that may be a little more than four percent. But that yeah. that's one option, not a popular option, but that's one. I'll tell you another. A lot of people don't realize that if you make more than one hundred thirty seven thousand bucks a year, any excess above that, you don't have to pay any social security tax. I never really understood that, but that's the that's the law. My guess is that's going to be uncapped. And every dime you make is going to be taxed for Social Security going forward. I think that's the easy fix, but it's not going to fix everything. It would help the program. I think that's the one that probably many people can wrap their brains around, yeah. right? Yeah. I get this. It doesn't impact everyone. If you're making that much money, how much do you need it anyway? Uh, another option on the table is raising the full retirement age. Now, when you think back to when this program started, right? Um, yeah. Living to 65 in the 1930s. That was mortality social... age. <laughs> exactly. That's when people died. 
We're living longer now, <laughs> yeah. right? So if you make it to 65, I think the stats say you're expected to make it to 80, 85 years old. So there's some saying that maybe we raise the full retirement age gradually to mm-hmm. the age of 69. Yeah. The problem on the flip side is there are a lot of people who try to wait until 70 to claim Social Security, yep. and they get a guaranteed 8% more each year on that benefit. That option will go out the window at that it, point. It, it would at that point. And I we'll see if that happens. My guess is it's going to be a combination of all these things, but if they raise the retirement age, you're you're going to see a whole lot of people file uh, for Social Security right before that happens and try to get grandfathered in. Yeah, they can uh, reduce the cost of living adjustment. Benefits could be cut. Lots of options. Simply money point. You can't control what Congress does, but you can't control how much you save. So you don't have to rely entirely on your benefit to retire comfortably. Coming up, our expert negotiator shares how you can negotiate on your next trip. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. We've been talking about this for a while. Inflation. You feel it at the pump. You feel it when you go to the grocery store. Uh, and it's hard to make ends meet right now. Joining us tonight, Andres Leras. He is a managing partner at Shapiro Negotiations. This is a whole new concept. You're saying we can negotiate right now when we're paying such high prices for things. Well, you know, it's interesting. We could negotiate before, too, but I think with inflation, it's certainly making people a little bit more sensitive about it, and so now yeah. there's a desire to. But, but uh, yeah, it's certainly something you can negotiate. I mean, not everything, but a lot more than you think. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, I mean, I always thought you could negotiate on cars. I'm a big negotiator. And actually, during this time, though, Andres, I've heard, like, there's a lot of places where you can't necessarily negotiate on cars because they're going above asking price. Am I wrong here? No, that's, that's the irony here is when most people think about negotiating, they think of, you know, a used car is one of the things that comes to mind, sure. almost like that in a flea market. And the, and the irony is that, yeah, um, used and, and new cars actually, because of supply chain issues, because of demand, they actually, I read a, a stat the other day that over the last year, used car pricing is up 50%. In the last year. So uh, the leverage has swung the other way. Now, there is some advantage, though. If you think about buying a car, we do have access now more than ever to a lot of information. So at least from a preparation standpoint, we can certainly do a lot of research and and find out more about comps. But it's uh, as far as what you can negotiate, I mean, that leaves a lot of other things. If you're buying furniture, secondhand goods, hotels, uh, rental, I mean, there's there's a lot there that still can be negotiated. Even healthcare costs, right? Before the last few years, I hadn't really heard much about that. But you can even ask, hey, if I pay cash, if I pay in full, uh, what are the options there? So, so what are the specific questions that we need to be asking to try to figure out, is there room to negotiate here or where can I get a discount? Well, so one of the things, when you think about negotiating, there's two ways to think about it. So the first thing that comes to mind for folks is the discount concept, right? Somebody's worth $100 and we want it for 80 And so I think if we open it up and think about really negotiating can be both ways, both discounting or adding more value at the same price. Think of it as an incentive or you know additional aspects of value. Then I think there's two moving parts. And so you can really do that just about anywhere. So uh, as far as the question asking, I think first of all, it's thinking in that way where, okay, can we decrease the price and also can we add more value? And if you're asking for both at the same time, it gives you a chance to, rather than feel like a fixed sum game where, okay, something's worth 100 and so they're asking for, you know, you're asking for it for 80 Instead, if you're asking for, for a discount, but also can you add more things, it feels like you're trying to collaboratively come to a conclusion that works for everyone, a solution that works for everyone, rather than almost every dollar that you pay less is one less dollar in their pocket. I think you make an awesome point here, and that is if I'm paying full price for this, 
is there something more that I can get, some additional value, some added benefit here? I think that a lot of us don't really think about it that way. We don't, and that's actually an easier ask. So most people, when we do our research, it tells us there's, there's quite a few reasons people don't like to negotiate and don't negotiate. And one of the biggest is that we're sort of concerned that we feel bad in either scenario, that if we push too hard, we might sort of damage the relationship, especially when, you know, it might be negotiating for a salary, for example, with our boss, or that we just, we don't, it's uncomfortable. And so we don't want to do it at all because we may not be successful. And so if you think about that second piece, you know, asking for a discount, lower price, sometimes it's a little bit more direct, but an incentive program, if you think of the next time you go to a hotel room and you ask, you know, is there a way, you know, do you provide any upgrades of any kind? or can you fill in breakfast or better internet? If you think of it, that's almost like an entree into negotiating. It's a little bit easier than saying, 159, can you do 130, right? And mm-hmm. so it's a little softer. It's a great way to start. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55 KRC. We're joined by Andres Laras. He is the managing partner at Shapiro Negotiations with some great thoughts on ways that you can negotiate, things that you can negotiate on. And Andres, you say that there's kind of a process to do this, right? If you're buying maybe a big ticket item, what are the main steps we need to think through here? So the first is preparation. And so you've got to do your research. And really, that is the bright side that although, for example, in a car, you know, you certainly, like as you mentioned, the leverage is swung the other way. There is a lot of information that we can find out if we're trying to buy Car X, we can find what it's sold for all over the country and, and find a lot of comparables. And that's helpful. And that's helpful for two reasons. The first is understanding the market, which is generally why you do it. But the second is the more you prepare, the more confident you are. And the more confident you are, the more likely you are to persuade the other side. Well, I think they also probably like see, like if you're saying this is a $50,000 car and you're saying I'm not going to pay a dime over $30,000, right? Well, yeah, good luck with that. If you've done your research, though, you understand what the comps are. You're more credible coming to the negotiation table, right? So if it's a $50,000 car and you're saying, look, you know, there's it's sold. I saw that uh, on average... This year and approximately this mileage is selling for 47500 Okay, now you're talking, right? Now yes. you get a conversation. And you asked about specific questions and wording. That's one that we really suggest is it's really nice, again, for those that maybe don't – they want to be sort of – confident, but uh, have a little bit of uncomfort. And so rather than making the ask, you're actually just sort of uh, stating the precedent and then saying nothing else. And so in that example, the $50,000 car, the precedent is on average, they're going for 47500 and just stop there. As much as we have a sort of a desire to keep going, just stop right there and see how the other side responds. And so, and also when you're having these conversations, and I think, you know, if you're not used to negotiating, uh, do you go low ball, right? Do you go somewhere mid-range? You know, where's the best way to kind of enter uh, a negotiation? So the, the the rule of thumb for that is to go as high or as low, depending on what side you are, that you can justify with a precedent. Okay. And so for in, in your example was perfect in that car, right? If it's a $50,000 car and you're coming in at 30000 well, what are the chances, right? And so if they ask you, where do you base that on? You know, what do you base that on? And you don't have a good response. That's not where you should be coming in. But if you have, you know, even if, for example, on average, they sold for 47500 but yeah, three or four of them sold nearby for 43000 
I mean, that would be a more aggressive, but it, it, at that point, you can justify it. So look, I know several of these cars with similar mileage and years have sold for 43000 That could be your comp now. That could be your precedent. And now, of course, they may come back, but one of the things that's important we know is, number one, you've got to be able to support it, but number two, those who ask for more get more. Now, they don't get what they want, and that's a huge, important piece of this, mm, right? Yes. If you ask for 43 in that example, you're not getting 43, but you give yourself a chance to get 45. If you ask for 47.5 to start, you're not even going to get that, right? And so uh, that's a good rule of thumb to remember. I have met people, Andres, who say that they love to negotiate, but they're not really negotiating because they're going to, they're determined they're not going to spend or pay or whatever the asking amount is, but they're also not going to go anywhere above what they are determined to pay. And I think you have to understand going into negotiation, it's also compromise. That's a part of it. And I think, you know, I, while compromise and that concept I think works, I think I almost would even say like an empathy aspect of it I yeah. think is important. So because the idea is, you know, we our, our methodology has always been one of you want to maximize your share. You want to, you know, you want to make sure that you're satisfied, but you at least want to to some extent satisfy the other side. And that concept is that's where the best deals get done because that means that you are for at least a minute thinking about the other side. And if you do that, now it doesn't mean you don't have to be aggressive and it doesn't mean you you don't get what you want, but it does mean that you approach it in a way where you're thoughtful, right? And so whether it's a car sale or furniture, whatever it is that you're buying, for example, Think about on their side, okay, for example, if you think about it, you think, okay, end of month. Well, you might want to come to a dealership at the end of the month, the last day of the month, where they've got monthly quotas. You're more likely to get uh, you know, a better deal. Well, if that's the case, even just that thought alone, because you thought, okay, I put myself in the seller's shoes. He's got to hit his monthly quota. He or she is more likely to negotiate. Great. And that's an example where empathy and just putting yourself in the other party's shoes can help you in, in the result and the way you approach it. Yeah, I love that. So, so come to the table with empathy. Do your research. Um, you know, make sure you're throwing out something uh, when you're negotiating that there is precedent for. Great insights tonight from Andres Lares, managing partner at Shapiro Negotiations. You can negotiate, especially and even during prices and times of high inflation. You've been listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovag. This holiday shopping season, online inventory is seriously limited. If you've started shopping, you've probably already figured that out. So is that going to force you back into stores? We're going to take a closer look at what all of this means for you, this crazy holiday shopping season. Here's a stat for you. 50% of parents say that you are sacrificing a portion of your retirement savings to help your, not just your children, your adult children. That's that's shocking to me. Yeah. Half. Yeah. Half are are somehow supporting their children. And, and I've seen it over the years, Amy. I mean, sometimes it's a college kid coming back for the summer. That's no big deal. But when you see adult children, when you see 35, 40-year-olds coming back to live with mom or mom and dad or whatever the case is, and, oh, I need a car. Oh, I can't find work. Oh, um, I, I need a new Nintendo game, whatever the case is. I, I, I literally have seen this start to bankrupt the parents. And, yeah. and you know, it's something you've got to be aware of because, yeah, great, you want to help out your kids, but you don't want to run out of money because you just were nice to your kids. Yeah. And there's two different camps here, right? One out of every two of you are giving some money to your adult children, but one out of every three of you have that kiddo post-college coming back who's living at home with you. Steve, have you ever seen the movie Failure to Launch? Oh, yeah. That's a good one. 
it's so funny because you're, you're watching it, right? Terry Bradshaw is trying to get get the kid out of the house. And, the, you know, why would he? And mom's cooking is so good and he can redecorate <laughs> his room. And it's yeah. like we can all laugh along with that. But it's not such a laughing matter when it's happening to you. And you're watching your savings deplete as the result of this your, your it's, kid li- living And it's happening you. more and more. It's more common. I, I mean, it used to be when, when I was when I was growing up, coming out of college, Living with your parents, why? Right. What's wrong with you? Yes. And now it's so much more acceptable, and, and I don't get that. I, I mean, out, out of my friends, nobody wanted to stay home. I, I One of my best friends, seven Irish kids. I, I mean, I, wow. I, the craziness in that house was absolutely at, <laughs> at an extreme level, and and mom just said, okay, you're out, you're out of school, whether it's high school or college. Um, okay, you're going to pay rent. And she would make sure rent was at least 50 bucks more than what it would cost if they just left the house and rented a place on their own. I, I mean, I, that was parenting. her. That, yeah. But <laughs> what you want to do is you want to make sure your kids are independent and, and that way they can succeed in life. Because if you give them everything, what's going to happen when they do leave the house or you pass away or whatever the case is? They're going to be lost. And, and your job as a parent in, in my world is... You want to have kids at least as successful and hopefully more successful and independent than you are. This show is a money show, but it's funny how through the years as I've been doing it, you you learn so much more. And Ed Fink, one of our founders, used to always say along the lines of parenting, you want to give your children roots and wings. And I think for yeah. those of you who are experiencing this right now, it's the wings part, right, that your children might be missing. So here's just some things that might help you relaunch your kids. The first thing to do is to sit down and calculate how much is this really costing you? And it's just easy to say, well, they're living at home. I'd be paying all these bills anyway. Eh, how much more are you spending in groceries? How yeah. much more is the water bill? Are you paying their cell phone bill? What other bills of theirs are you paying? Their car insurance, helping them with gas, whatever it is. Unless when the pandemic first started, there were there were adult children who legitimately were losing jobs and needed help. But, but that's not right. the job market that exists out there. So there's nothing wrong with putting pen to paper figuring out how much it is. First of all, it will be eye-opening to you as a parent. But secondly, then what you have to do is go have that conversation with your child. And and, and it probably will be eye-opening to them as well. You you know, most, uh, and if we're talking fresh out of college, it's different than if they're 40 or 50 years old. But um, just like most things in life, Amy, communication solves all problems. Solves yes. almost all problems. And, and, and I, I think most kids think, oh, mom and dad are doing great. You know, they're going out and buying stuff and traveling and everything else. They must the be unlimited loaded. bank of mom and dad. Yeah, exactly. And when you sit down and, and show them, no, here's how it actually works. Here's how much we have. Not every parent is willing to do that. But I'll tell you what, I know a bunch that have sat down with their kids. And now all of a sudden you're communicating. That, yes. That's 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 the best part. You're communicating. You're being open. You're you're not saying you have to leave tomorrow, but you're you're saying here's what it costs me, and we need to figure out what's the end game on this. It's not just forever. We need to go up to whatever level we have to, but then we can't we can't have you hurt us financially because we have our lives. You have yours. I'm a big fan of setting and establishing healthy boundaries, yep. and, and this is one of those. Listen, and, and talk to your kid. If they're going to continue to stay there, determine what they can afford, 
have them start paying some rent, right? Yeah. There's a creep factor. And if if you know anyone who's dealing with this, they'll talk about when the kids first came home, I'm so sorry, this is just for this amount of time, yeah. you know, and yep. then all of a sudden it creeps into, oh, but my buddies are going on this trip and I just don't have enough or there's this concert yeah. and all of a sudden it creeps and more and more you're spending on, on things that you weren't initially spending maybe when and, they and, first came And home. that's that's your chance to start doing their budgeting. Let's teach them how to budget. Yeah. How much do you have coming in? Let's talk about how much is going out. Okay, so you should be saving $200 this month. I think that's what your rent is going to be, or I think that needs to go into this index fund. Uh, let's start getting invested or, or increase your 401k. If they're going to live under your roof, I think you can make your own rules. I, yeah. I mean, I, I really do. And, and budgeting for them, I think, is acceptable because they are asking you for money. Well, and I think also then when you relaunch them, you're relaunching them more financially sound, right? That they get sure. it. They understand a budget. They understand the importance of saving. And here's another one. Call Steve Sproback. And here's what I mean by this. <laughs> if you have a trouble, have trouble talking to your kids about this, get your advisor involved, right? Whoever your yeah. advisor is, they've had these conversations before. They are not emotionally involved and they can simply sit down with your kids and say, here's the deal, right? Your parents keep giving I thought you were going to give level. out my cell number for a second. I was getting nervous. Here's the number. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no. it's true, yeah. and I have sat down with tons of kids of of clients, and and it's a good conversation, no yeah. question. Eye opening. Here's the simply money point: if you have an adult child that has moved home and they don't seem to be moving into a more financially responsible direction, you can relaunch them after they've had the opportunity to catch their breath and maybe benefit from your wisdom at the same time. Coming up, if you haven't started your holiday shopping yet, while well, you may be forced to leave the comfort of ordering from home and gasp. Get back into stores. We'll explain. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sproback. Online shoppers, so many of us have kind of become that, right, over the past few years, even if you didn't like it before. But what you might be finding this year is that you can't find the things that you need online. They're on back order. My daughter was looking up some stuff the other day that she wanted for Christmas. You'll get it in, like, September of next year. Yeah. So, Steve, I think for a lot of people, it's like, well, I might have to go back into stores, right, to find something, anything to give people. It's really weird. Have you been in any brick-and-mortar stores, malls? In yes. the past few months, I mean, yes. there, there are some empty shelves. I, I mean, popular toys and, and, and gifts and things you're looking for. It's it's really disturbing. It's empty shelves and long lines to check out because there's yeah. not enough people to stock the shelves and there's not enough pe- and there's not enough stock even if they had it. Um, and then the worker shortage also has not enough people to check you out. So there's just kind of this perfect storm this holiday season. We've got congestion at ports, the shortage of workers, not enough storage space for goods. When they finally arrive, there's just a lot going on. And so one of the things that the experts are saying is that we might be forced into stores this year and we might have to settle. In the past, when it came to retail, you had endless opportunities, right? You could go into Macy's. You could go to Macy's at Kenwood and Macy's in Florence. You could look at Macy's online. You could check Amazon's mm-hmm. prices. Mm-hmm. You could go to Target. Now, if you find one thing, one of whatever that thing is, that Nintendo Switch, that sweater, that sweatshirt, whatever it is, get it, get it while you can. Well, yeah, my wife was on online because we. You mentioned Nintendo Switch. We're getting that for our, our son and his family. Um, Best Buy in in the Phoenix area, out of them. Target mm-hmm. had one left, so she grabbed it and did pick up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I wouldn't even depend on should ship by because those dates can change, and, and it's not across the board. I don't want to create a panic, but some things are in short supply, no question. Yeah. 
And I think even after we get through this holiday shopping season, stores are going to have to learn some hard lessons. One, that whether you're shopping online or in the store, you have to have an excellent experience and it has to be similar, right, to what you would expect in a store, what you would expect online, regardless Mm -hmm. of, of which one of those that you're doing. And second, some stores have tried to be all things to all customers. And it's tough to be able to do that. It's tough to be able to keep that up. So one of the things they might have to look at is specializing. Think about when you go into Ikea, the experience there, um, a Lululemon, things like that. All stores might have to head in that direction. We'll see what happens. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station.